book of Colossians chapter 3. If you'll stand for the reading of God's word with me, church. We're going to begin in verse 12 as we did last week because our text is dependent on verse 12. Paul's instruction to the Colossian church and the Holy Spirit's instruction to us is this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is to complain against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Father, as we come to this text this morning, we see that you have a desire to impact not just our lives and our attitudes, not just our marriages, but our families as well. The way that we as kids should, should think of our parents is to be impacted by Jesus Christ's work in our lives. And the way we as parents interact with our kids is to be impacted by what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. So Father, as we look to this this morning, Many of us, I know, right now, will resist your word because our hearts are hard, because there's sin in our lives that we refuse to acknowledge. But I pray that by the power of your spirit working that you would soften our hearts, that you would show us where we can better reflect Jesus Christ in our lives and where his work could be put on display in our homes and our homes could glorify Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I can already tell I'm going to get hot. <laughs> I'm just not even going to try. So, so if you were here with us last week, you, you've already begun to see the way that, that Paul is shaping his instruction to Christian households. The big idea is that our growth as Christians isn't going to be seen in in our commitment to traditions. It's not going to be seen in our rituals. Our growth as Christians isn't even going to be seen in our Christian programs. Our maturity as Christians is going to be demonstrated in our deepening knowledge of Christ and the transformation that Christ brings in us. And in, in the transformation that, that he brings through us in our relationships with one another. Who, who we are in Christ gets put on display when the church is gathered together. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. And who we are in Christ is also put on display when the church is scattered. When we're scattered back into our homes and back into our workplaces. Everywhere we go, everything we do in word or Indeed, we do it in his name. We do it representing Jesus Christ. We've put on Christ. Last week, we talked about how our union with Christ is put on display in our marriages. This week, verses 20 and 21, Paul shifts his attention to the relationship between parents and children, children and parents. In the home, for kids, and we're just going to get right into this, for kids, Putting on Christ looks like what? Obedience to parents. Young people, all of you who are young. Obedience to your parents is one of the fruits, one of the effects of your faith in Christ. And Paul says children there in verse 20, when he says that we're talking anyone who is still dependent on their parents. The word is literally offspring. 
those who come from their parents who are dependent on their parents. So if you still live under your parents' roof, or you're dependent on them financially, or you're not married, you don't have a career, you you haven't set out and started a life on your own, separate from your parents, Paul's talking to you in this text. So if you're here and you're in the youth group, the Bible is addressing directly your situation. If you're in college, in many cases, the Bible is addressing your situation. If you're in middle school or elementary school, Paul is talking to you. And not often do I talk to you from the pulpit, so we're going to do that today. If, if you are in union with Christ, remember this is instruction for Christians. If you're not a Christian, that's a whole other issue. But this instruction is for Christians. So if you are a Christian, you're union with Christ. If you believe that all of your righteousness... All of your acceptance before God is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then you know what? That reality is to be lived out. You're supposed to live it. You're supposed to walk that. You're going, you're going to look more and more like Christ. You will. And in your relationship to your parents, that looks like obedience. Look back at, at verse 20 with me. Because it's not just obedience. In some things, what does Paul say? Children, obey your parents in everything. Obey them in everything. Everything means everything. From when you are to be home, to whom you should or should not be hanging out with, to whether or not you should be dating, to, to how much screen time you should have, when you go to bed, whether or not you can have a smartphone or drive the car or watch that movie or play that video game or wear that outfit in everything, in everything, obey your parents. There's no exceptions. And why? Why does Paul say we should obey our parents? Why should Christian young people obey their parents? Because they're smarter than you? No. Because they put a roof over your head and feed you and and they clothe you. No. Just because they're older than you, they're your parents? No. Because they said so? No. Because they love you? No. Because they're so admirable and respectable that it makes sense to obey them? No. Why are Christian kids supposed to obey their parents? Look at the end of verse 20. This is your motivation. Because it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. God is pleased when you reflect Christ in your relationship to your parents. Let your life's purpose be to please God, not to please yourself, not to please your friends, not to please your boyfriends or your girlfriends, not even, this is, this is interesting here, your life's purpose, purpose is not even to please your parents, Your purpose is to please God. God called you, if you're in Christ, he called you to Christ, young people, so that your life could glorify him. And God is most pleased, he's most glorified and honored when your identity is lived out in Jesus Christ. You following with me there? It's a simple command, it's not an easy command, to follow, but it's a simple command to understand. And here's where I think things get difficult. If you claim to be a Christian, listen, young people. Eyes up here. Listen, up here. I'm not going to say names. All right, listen. If you claim to be a Christian, and yet your relationship to your mom or dad is consistently characterized by disobedience and disrespect rather than obedience. Listen carefully. It's probably probably because your faith in Christ isn't genuine. It hasn't taken root at the core of who you are and begun to bear good fruit in your life. It doesn't matter if you, if you prayed a prayer at camp. It doesn't matter if you, if you prayed a prayer in, in youth group 
Listen, that prayer isn't what saves you. Jesus is who saves you. And when Jesus saves you, this is what happens. He changes your life. He changes your attitude. So, so if, you, if what you say with your lips hasn't made its way into your heart and into your life, then what you say with your lips is hollow. Are you understanding that? This is, they're hollow words. If, if the evidence of faith in a young person, the only evidence of faith that Paul is pointing to, if that evidence is their obedience to their parents and that evidence is missing, if it's not there, if the good fruit isn't growing on the tree, it's highly likely that that tree's roots are not in Jesus Christ. And I say that to you as a warning, a serious warning. And I know it sounds harsh, and I'm not trying to be harsh. It's, it's my job to love you by teaching you God's word and protecting you from eternal damnation. And so, so out of love for you, I know that you're here for a reason and God's brought you here to hear his word, not to meet girls, all right? God's brought you here to hear his word and to be changed by his word. So hear it, believe it, and let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. Let, let the Holy Spirit's work in your heart begin to change your, all of your allegiance from yourself to Jesus Christ. If you claim to be rooted in Christ and you look down at the, the end of your branches as a tree, you look at your life and you don't see the fruit of being in Christ, it means you don't see humility, you don't see obedience. And instead you see disobedience and resentment and pride and arrogance and anger. Let me tell you, I know that's the case for some of you, and so I'm going to apply the text to your life, okay? The solution to that problem is not then to force yourself, white-knuggle yourself into begrudging obedience to your parents. The missing fruit in your life is not the problem, is it? It's a symptom. It's a symptom of, of the true problem. Your first step as someone who's struggling in this area shouldn't be towards that fruit. You'll never grasp it. You'll never get that. Your for, first step should be towards Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your salvation. Young people, old people, all people. Jesus Christ is your salvation. Are you trusting in his work? Are you trusting that he, he's died for you? He's taken to the grave with him all of your rebellion, all of those instincts that you have to resist everything mom or dad says to do. Do you believe that Christ died so that you could die to your passions, so that you could die to the, to the old self and be made new in Christ? If you believe that, then receive him. Cling to him. Find every bit of who you are, all of your identity in him. Read his word. Seek, seek to grow in the knowledge of, of who he is and what he's done for you and what that even means. And as you do that, as you do that, seek to clothe yourself with his righteousness. Put on, as we read this morning, Put on his righteousness. Put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and, and meekness and patience because this is the new you in Jesus Christ. Where you were once apathetic and you didn't care about anything, now you're becoming compassionate. Where you were once selfish and mean, now you're becoming selfless and kind. Where you were once a self-confident know-it-all, and I know that young man, you're now becoming humble. Where you were once brash, you are now meek. Where you were impatient and hasty and foolish, now you're more patient. I know this is true because this happened for me. And I'm, I still have a long, 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 long way to go in each of these Christ-like characteristics. 
But this is what happens. This is what you are becoming in Christ. And when those new traits are what begin to characterize you, you know what happens? Obedience to your parents, that's just second nature. You become, because of Christ's work in you, you become less annoyed that your dad is a dork. Okay? It will happen. You, you become more understanding of your mom's temper. And, and you're less likely to snap back at her every time. You bear with your parents. That's what Christ does in you. He causes you, the spirit working in you, to become more bearing of everyone, including your parents. And when they sin against you, and your parents will sin against you, you know what you do? You forgive them. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you. You understand that your parents will sin because you've been made new in Christ. And you know, because of your own struggle with sin, that only Christ can forgive, and that through Christ you can forgive. And you know what? That leads to compassion. And that leads to your forgiveness of your mom and dad, just as Christ forgave you. As you grow in Christ, you will grow in your obedience to your parents. Obedience to parents is what it looks like to put on Christ in your youth. Last thing before we move on to parents. Young people, if you are confident in your cry, that, you, that you're in Christ and, and you see, I know I'm trusting in Christ and yet obedience to my parents is agonizingly difficult. If that's the case for you, listen, first pray. Right? Don't, don't put that on your parents. First pray. Recognize that that attitude is coming from your own heart. So pray about it. This is God's will for you. And if you are in Christ, then I know you have the Holy Spirit. And I know that he's there to help you obey God's will for you. To follow God's will for you. The Spirit will help you in this if you'll only ask. In addition to prayer, I want you to talk to your parents about it. Or if, if that's not a possibility, if, if they don't even, if they're not Christians and there's no way they would understand what God is calling you to, you're not alone. Josh and Sarah are here to care for you. The entire church is here to care for you. My wife and I are happy to talk to you about these things. God didn't save you and set you out all by yourself and give you no one. He's given you an entire family. to surround you, and to walk with Christ with you, and to love you, and to encourage you, and to steer you towards honoring Christ in every aspect of your life, including obeying your parents. We were kids too. We, we remember those struggles, how, how difficult it is to obey your parents when your parents are jerks, but you're called to obey them anyway. Church, Let's be a people, let's be a church that are sincerely praying for our young people in this area. Let's be a people who our young people look to and know we're in Christ. There's no doubt in their minds that, the, that we are following Christ because they see the fruit in our own lives. And they see that, they see our union with Christ and the fruit of that, and they trust us. Let's let them know that we're a people that love them. Let's see to it that because they're in the body of Christ with us, together, not as a separate youth group, one body of Christ, one Christ, one baptism, one gospel, we're all together. Let's see to it that when they look to us, they see a people that are one body in Christ with them, and they trust that, and they know that. All right? That's all. You're off the hook now. Okay? On to parents. Let's look at verse 21. This is where it gets more difficult. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, simple command. Not easy. Again, Paul doesn't give us, I mean, if you look out of this entire book of Colossians, how many verses do we go to parenting? One. It's like one sentence. He doesn't give us a whole list of things that say how to be a good parent. He doesn't give us a list of things for how to have a happy home 
or how to raise successful kids or athletes or smart kids or rich kids. Just like last week, that's not the point. That this isn't focused on the family. This is focused on Christ. The focus is on Christ. When we focus on the family, we lose Jesus Christ. If we train our eyes on Jesus Christ, we gain him and our families. And that's Paul's instruction to us. Our minds are to be set on things above. Our lives are hidden in Christ. And that reality is to be put on display even in the way that we interact with our kids. Our homes, just like our churches, are to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So the instruction is that one really simple sentence. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Notice, first of all, that that Paul's directing this to fathers. This doesn't mean that mothers are being ignored. But he's speaking directly to the fathers. Why? Because as we saw, fathers are heads of the household. They're the captain of the ship. They're the ones being held responsible for everything that takes place in the family, for the parenting in the home included. Fathers are accountable. We don't like that word, but it's true. Denying a father's accountability is like denying gravity or the spherical shape of the earth. It's it's a part of creation. Fathers are accountable for their families. The same way that a ship's captain is held accountable for everything that happens on the ship. Look at the extent of the father's influence just in this one sentence, this one passage. Fathers are even held accountable for the kids' attitudes. We think, oh no, our kids have free will. Everything they do is up to them. Their decisions and and the way they turn out is all up to them. But what does Paul say? We're accountable. We are responsible as fathers even for our kids' attitudes. The Holy Spirit knows because he searches hearts. He knows that there is a direct causal relationship. Not just a correlation, but a causal relationship between the father's parenting and the encouragement or discouragement of our kids. That's a creation truth. And so as we begin the rest of this instruction, let that be the big, bold, capital letter words that you don't forget. And let's be responsible as fathers, okay, church? A church whose fathers are responsible and are living that out is a church whose kids begin to greater and greater bear the image of Christ. Though the instruction is addressed to fathers, it includes mothers, even if fathers are ultimately hold, held responsible for the parenting, mothers are the, the co-workers in that task. And so their instruction is the same. Mothers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now that is such a vague command, isn't it? Parents, don't provoke your children. What, how, how do, I don't even know what I'm doing that's provoking them sometimes. Except for chasing them around with a Nerf gun. (laughs) I know that that probably bothers them, but let's look at these areas where where real, long-lasting discouragement is probably taking place. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to outline four areas. There there are a myriad, there there are tons of areas where we are prone to provoking our kids. These are four that I think are common, and so we're going to look to these. And I'll begin with the most obvious, and we'll move our way down. One of the first areas that we can provoke our kids is control. When we try to control them, we provoke our kids to discouragement. The second one is selfish expectations. The third is the abdication of our responsibilities as parents. The fourth is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, four areas where we are prone to provoke our kids to discouragement and cause trouble in their lives. Let's look at the first one. This isn't going to be fun, okay? (laughs) I'm just going to give you that. There's no fun stories here. There's no funny jokes. This is serious because this is a a command that I think 
Scripture takes very seriously. Control. Out of, out of the sins of the heart that cause the most damage in our relationships with our kids, the desire for control is one of the worst. This desire kills all of our relationships. When, when a parent selfishly desires to control their kid, that will come out in any number of ways. There's lots of ways that this is expressed. Oftentimes, it, it comes out in its base form, and that's just pure anger, pure rage, simply by, by brute force, either by the tone of voice or by physical force, a parent will try to control the actions of their kid. Even when they're infants, this happens. A, a mom who's, who's up, it's, it's 3 a.m., the baby's been sleeping, she's, the, she's not doing what the book says she would be doing and sleeping through the night at whatever age, and the mom is just screaming at the baby because the baby won't cede to her control. She's expressing a desire to control that child. A dad who hits his kid of anger is using whatever means he can, whatever, whatever comes to him to control that child. There, there are subtle forms of this too. It's not always brute force. Manipulation. Manipulation is a more passive, but it's equally noxious. Parents who use emotion or shame or guilt trips are using manipulation, and you know you're doing it. We know when we're doing that we're using manipulation to control the behavior of our kids. A sinful desire for control leads to discouragement. That's not just true for your relationships with your kids. It's true in your relationships to everyone. What causes fights and quarrels among you? James asks. You, you want something and you don't get it, and so you fight. It's a desire for, for control. If you have this desire for control, this is going to be expressed in your relationships. And what you need to recognize is that expression is often, almost always, going to be sin. And what that's going to reveal to you is that your desire for control has become an idol in your life. It has replaced Jesus Christ as Lord, as center of your life, and you're serving that idol and bowing down to that idol by sacrificing other people. If Jesus is Lord and King, Listen, if he is Lord and King, and if he is to be trusted in every area of our lives, then we can trust that by obeying to him and submitting to the way that he has ordered things, whatever the situation is, it's going to be worked out for his glory. We have that promise. We can take that to the bank. When we sinfully desire our own control and our own outcomes, we're saying to Jesus Christ, Jesus, I don't trust in your sovereignty, so I'm going to be my own sovereign. We're saying we don't believe that he is reconciling all things to himself. And we place ourselves on his throne, and we sin against anyone in our path when we're trying to enact our own selfishly desired outcomes. And you know what's sad is our kids will see that They'll see right through that. They'll see from our actions that we believe God is small and powerless and that he cannot be trusted. And that provokes our kids to discouragement. Not only that, but when we seek to control our kids, we communicate to them that they cannot be trusted with their own decision making. Now, kids are foolish, okay? Don't get me wrong. This, they, they, they don't come out of the womb perfect little angels that are just corrupted by the world. They come out sinners. You, you don't have to teach kids to lie, do you, teachers? No. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to throw a temper tantrum. That, that's natural. It, 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 it's a part of their sinful nature. You don't have to teach a child to say, mine. You don't have to teach them selfishness. All that stuff comes pre-programmed in their little demon hearts because they're descendants of Adam. 
Proverbs 22.15 says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly, foolishness in the heart of a child. In Psalm 51.5, David confesses that from the moment he was conceived, he was a sinner. Kids come out of the womb little sinful fools that need training and guidance and instruction just to keep them alive, right? All parents have experienced this. So for a season, they require control, don't they? They, they, they actually require pretty tight controls. We put them in slings and in carriers and in playpens and in cribs, and we put little leashes on the wild ones. And, and we do that. Why do we do that? We do that to restrain them and to control where they can and cannot go. See, that's not sin. That's just parenting. That's not what I'm talking about. That, that's the type of control that is simply a part of God's ordering in our families. But as they grow, listen, as they grow under our discipline and under our instruction, they, Lord willing, become less foolish. And they become more trustworthy and more autonomous. That's your job as a parent. Parenting is the art of preparing kids for independence. We're preparing kids not to be perpetual, perpetual kids. We're preparing them for hashtag adulting, aren't we? And that requires relinquishing more and more control and giving them more and more grace. And when we don't do that with wisdom, as we should, when we instead err on the side of micromanaging our kids, we provoke them to discouragement. Secondly, selfish expectations. We as parents can provoke our kids to discouragement when we expect them to fulfill our needs. This is lived out in just lots and lots and lots of ways. Different parents express this sin to control or to, to uh, have selfish expectations in our kids' lives. We express it in lots of different ways. Think about the way we do this with sports. This is the most obvious one in our culture. Sports has become one of the most voracious, counterfeit gods in our culture. In 2017, more than 20% of parents spent $12,000 or more just on kids' sports. 20% of parents, 12000 or more on kids' athletics. The remaining 80% on average spent around $3,000 for the year. It's to the point where parents are not saving as much for retirement as they used to, and they're taking fewer vacations than they used to, all to finance this selfish expectation that their kid would be like the next, I'm going to fill in the blank, you know, famous guy, basketball player, right? The, the, the next star athlete. Even Christian parents are doing this. Christian parents will put sports, sports, a game, above gathering together with the family of God to worship. Oftentimes, the church gathered together for worship is the only thing, the only thing that we do that has any eternal significance during the week as a family. And yet, it gets dropped like a hot brick for the hopes that kids, our kids will be the one in a million who make the pros. When kids' athletics becomes disproportionately prominent in our family lives, we communicate to our kids that we are expecting something of them that on the one hand is totally unrealistic and on the other is contrary to the God-given priorities that we've received from Scripture. Selfish expectations. We see it in athletics, we see it in music, we see it in academics, we see it in wanting our grown kids to marry on our timeline or to have children on our timeline. There are just so many ways that we provoke our kids to discouragement because we have expectations of them that are completely self-centered and that come from our 
our own selfishness. We also discourage our kids when we make idols out of them and place our kids at the center of our lives. When we selfishly expect our kids from our kids what we can only get from Jesus Christ himself. When we do that, we provoke our kids to discouragement. This is the, the helicopter parenting phenomenon that we're seeing. Hovering over everything that's happening in our kids' lives. We're just hovering around, trying to protect them from any harm whatsoever because they're our little gods and we don't want our little gods to get hurt. When we do that, we're treating them like idols. When we build everything in our lives, including our marriages, around their schedules and their needs and their wants and their desires, we're, we're serving them in a way that is only meant to be served, serving to God himself. And that proves to be ultimately destructive to our kids. Because what does it do? It communicates to them that the world revolves around them. And when, by the mercy of God, they finally find out that that's not true, they're in for an awakening, aren't they? There is much sorrow that will take place. There is much discouragement that will take place as they work their way out of the center of the universe. Their experiences, because of your idolatrous parenting style, their experiences in the real world will be much more difficult than if they had been taught instead that Jesus Christ was at the center of your life and not your child. Rather than making idols out of kids and, and ultimately provoking them to discouragement, we should instead be communicating to them the gospel of Christ. We're to teach them through our words and through our, our deeds that we had to die to ourselves to live in Christ. And so they too must die. They too must take up their cross and lose their own lives for the sake of being found in Jesus Christ. That is completely opposite, isn't it? Number three, we provoke our kids to discouragement when we abdicate our responsibilities as parents. Now this, this is a huge spectrum, all right? I'm not gonna try to cover everything in it. I'm just gonna give you the one side of the spectrum and the other side of the spectrum. On the one side, we have the abandonment of our responsibility. This is the mom or dad who, who leaves the home. I mean, literally leaves, they're gone. Or they're simply just, they're not present. And there's lots of reasons why they're not present. It could be because of work, it could be because of hobbies, it could be laziness, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. We'll just call it abdication through absenteeism. You're an absent parent. Don't begin to think that the other parent or a daycare can provide all that your child needs. God created man in his own image, right? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Children need both a mother and a father in order to see the full spectrum of the image of God on display as they grow. They, they're, they're understanding what it means simply to be human, let alone Christian, but human by seeing mother and father together as they grow. This is it's a common grace, even in non-Christian households, where both mom and dad are present. The, the, what we see is that kids turn out much better adjusted than parents who's, or kids who only had one parent. Study after study after study, not, not by Christians, but by non-Christian universities, we're talking Berkeley and UCLA, Harvard, studies consistently show that even above the influence of wealth, which we think solves all the problems, but it doesn't, even above the influence of wealth, kids who grow up with married parents are more successful, more mentally stable, they live longer, they're healthier, they're happier, their marriages last longer. The evidence is absolutely irrefutable, and it is attributable, it's attributed to God's good design. It's a, it's a creation mandate. This is something that came out of how we are created. 
And that's a common grace issue, okay? This is, that is in every household in the world. But Christian households should be even more distinct. Even more than a common household with two parents, a Christian household, what is, what's happening there is what is even more important than all of those temporal goods, all of that worldly success stuff. In a Christian household, kids need to see mom and dad so that they can see the image of Christ reflected in their homes. Wives submitting to their husbands and, loving, or, and husbands loving their wives. If you missed last week's sermon on verses 18 and 19, go watch it online. Our kids need to see the gospel lived out in their homes. And the best way they can see that is when mom and dad are present. When they're there. And they're reflecting Jesus Christ in their marriage to one another. So on, on the other end of that spectrum, from absenteeism is abdication through anarchy. This is when the parents are present, but they're failing to parent. They abandon the structure of authority that God has built into the home and instead make the kids equal to them in terms of decision-making and family mission and direction and so on. These are, these are parents who choose to be friends instead of parents. And they outsource their parenting to the schools or to the youth pastor or to the pastor or to the kids' peers. Parents, our kids will have lots of friends. Lots of friends. They don't need more friends. They need parents. And they only get two. They need the structure and the discipline that only we can provide for them. And when we fail to give them that, you know what we do? We provoke them to discouragement. We eliminate the most important opportunity that they have to learn how to operate in a system where authority is a good thing. And so when they don't have that structure in their home and they, and they don't know how to submit to divinely ordained authority in their lives. They fail to learn how to submit to their teachers. Ask any of the teachers here in our church how many kids find it easy to submit to their teachers. It's, it's horrendously difficult because they're not seeing this at home. They, they fail to learn how to submit to their bosses when they get to work. Their lives are just miserable because parents didn't parent. And what's worse this is the worst of it. These kids despise even the authority of God himself in their lives. Being a friend to our kids rather than a parent to them undermines the calling that God has placed on us. And it can be a destructive, it is a destructive source of discouragement to our kids. <laughs> Lastly, number four. We can provoke our kids to discouragement when we say one thing and then we do another. In other words, when we're hypocrites. When we tell our kids that through the good news of our redemption, Christ will make us more like him, and yet we never, ever change when we're still just as angry as we were when our kids were born. We prove ourselves to be hypocrites. And the gospel we're proclaiming to our kids turns out to be empty and powerless. When we demand from our kids that they apologize when they hurt someone, and yet they never, ever, ever see us repenting of our own sin. We communicate to our kids that we don't need Jesus as much as they do. And that's hypocrisy. When we, communicate, when we communicate to our kids that our acceptance of our kids is based on their performance rather than our unconditional love for them, then we negate the gospel message that our acceptance before God is through Jesus Christ and by grace alone. 
That's hypocrisy. Our parenting of our kids should reflect the unconditional love that God has for us and the salvation by grace alone that God has offered to us. We offer grace to our kids because we've been given grace. And when we don't, we're hypocrites. When we tell our kids that all we do as a family is in the name of Jesus Christ, representing Christ, and yet it is so obvious to them that we're only representing ourselves, we're hypocrites. And parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, when we're hypocrites, when our, when our lives don't line up with our message, we undermine the gospel message that we've been entrusted with. And that message, that good news is the single most encouraging thing we have to pass on to our kids. And when we take that away through our hypocrisy, when we rob them of that, we provoke them to discouragement. So for many of us, we, we look at this little list of four things and we say, if we're sensitive to the Spirit, we realize we're guilty. We're guilty of all four of these things, probably dozens more. We've provoked our kids to discouragement. And, and for many of us, we know it's too late. <laughs> that ship has sailed. My kids are grandparents now. Some of our kids are now grown up and they have kids of their own and they want nothing to do with the Lord. And if we're honest, we know we bear at least a part of the blame for that. And so rather than feeling uplifted by God's word on a Sunday morning, you're discouraged. Discouraged. Don't walk away discouraged. There's good news in the gospel. Listen, Christ has taken your guilt, even your guilt, in parenting, and he's taken it with him to the cross. Your sin as a parent is not so great that the cross of Christ can't cover it. Repent and believe in the power of Christ's work. Confess your sin to your families, no matter how old they are now. Confess past sin to your families and pray that in Christ. And in spite of your failures, your kids would see the truth of the gospel and the word of God. I want you to know this. Your, your failures as a parent, and I know not all of us have failed so miserably that our kids totally hate us and resent us now. But some of us have. So I, I, want, I want to speak to you truth that can be an encouragement to you. I'll let that end. I'll wait for a minute. <laughs> it's good. Somebody's listening to their Bible during the week. Praise God. Praise God. Your failures as a parent are never so great. I want you to know this. They're never so great that your kid cannot be saved. You're not that powerful. With as devastating an influence as we can have on our kids, the Holy Spirit's influence, praise God, is greater. Praise God. The Holy Spirit is who turns our kids to Christ. It's not us. It never was. We can be a discouragement to them, and many of us have been. And praise God, many of us have not been. The Holy Spirit is greater, and the Holy Spirit's work through your prayers and through your sharing of the gospel with them and through other people that God is surrounding them with even right now, they can still be saved. I want to leave you with this, this last word on Christian households, mainly because it's going to be a long time before we talk about marriage and parenting again. All right, When we go through books of the Bible in this way, these topics only come up occasionally. I want to leave you with this. If we remember that our minds are to be set on things that are above, 
that is on eternal things, if we have an eternal mindset, then our identity in Christ will always be our first identity as Christians, okay? So in Christ, we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of, of our creator. That's what's personally happening in our lives, and that's true, and that's an eternal truth that's central to the Christian life. But even, even though we're growing to reflect Christ more and more, we're still here, aren't we? Even though we have that heavenly identity, we're still here on earth with all of these earthly identities, mom and dad and husband and wife and worker and co-worker. Those are ways that define us while we're on earth. But I want you to know that if our identity is in Christ first, then that second identity as husband or wife, that becomes easier. Because you're in, you're in Christ first, and you're growing to reflect Christ, so that becomes reflected in your marriage. And as Christ as, is reflected in your marriage, then what happens as a parent? Well, these things are already happening. Submission and love are already happening as a parent, and that becomes translated into your parenting. A Christian marriage is a byproduct of a Christian life, and Christian parenting is a byproduct of a Christian marriage, which is a byproduct of the Christian life. Your identity in Christ is first. It's, it's primary. And as you are changed by Jesus Christ, all of these other areas in your life are changed as well. And, and, and what I believe is that if our focus is on Jesus Christ, then our marriages become more Christ-like. And as, as we focus on Jesus Christ and we're living Christ-like marriages, then our parenting, it becomes easier. God gives us the wisdom that we need to parent in all of these different situations. That's why there's hundreds of thousands of books on parenting because of all these different situations. But the Holy Spirit's with us. And we're trusting in Christ. And God is providing for us wisdom from his word to meet us in these situations.